Beloved, open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 8. And let's stand together and we're going to read together this last paragraph of, of Romans chapter 8 that begins in verse 31. And we're going to spend our time this morning focusing on verses 35 through 39. So let's read this together. And let us hear the word of God with gladness. What then shall we say to these things? And you remember, he's, he's talking about everything that he has said from, you know, really the beginning. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 up until now. And he says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, when we come to these words, I think one of the greatest challenges, Father, for us is that we have such a pygmy view of what love really is in this world in which we live. God, we view love as as a changeable thing. We see it as something that can start and end. Lord God, we live in a culture that continually, Father, is on again, off again, and our understanding of love is just, it's so watered down. It's so watered down to infatuation and you know, affirmation and these other things when in reality, Father God, your love is, is the most powerful, the strongest bond that there is in the entire universe. And so I'm praying, Father, that as we approach this text this morning, I'm praying, Lord God, that we do so, Father, with a heart that is prepared to be amazed and astonished, with a heart that Lord God, we want to know, like we want to, we want to rest upon something that is rock solid and steadfast and sure. I'm praying, Lord God, that you would disabuse us of our empty notions of God's love and, 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 and of your character and, and Father, that you would replace them with a biblical understanding of your covenant faithfulness. And Lord, I am asking you that, <clears throat> Father, you would fill me with your Holy Spirit, that you would make me an instrument in your hands in order to preach your word in a way, Father, that both pleases you, that, 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 that is satisfying to you, Lord God, but also to preach your word in a way that is winsome and powerful, Father God, and, and 
that, that does the necessary, the good work of drawing hearts to you, of drawing souls to you in this room today. So I'm, I'm pleading with you, Lord God, that, that your word would go forth faithfully. It would go forth faithfully, Father God, because you are controlling my very words and, and making me to speak in a way that's pleasing to your sight. And Father God, it would be received fruitfully in the hearts of everyone that is here today and everybody who might listen to this on the internet. So glorify yourself, I pray. Exalt and magnify your love, the love of Christ, the love of God in Christ Jesus for your people. And make us, I pray, to stand in awe and in amazement. I ask this in Christ's blessed name. Amen. You know, beloved, when we started Romans chapter 8, I said to you that, you know, this chapter is one of those chapters that there are several really well-known theologians that say this is the greatest chapter in Scripture. And if you remember, I wasn't ready to go there. I wasn't ready to go there when we first started, you know, working our way through this chapter. But I think I might be there now. I really think I might be there now. Although, although Ephesians 1 is pretty sweet, I got to say, I think this might be the greatest chapter in all of Scripture, you know, and I was actually talking to John about this, and we were talking about, you know, a whole game that we used to play where if you could have, you know, one book, you're on a, you know, deserted island, you got one book from the Bible that you can have, you know, it would be Romans, I mean, for me anyway. And John's like, yeah, but if you could have one chapter, it'd be Romans chapter 8. And I was like, yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. This chapter has been remarkable. I want you to think about how, how this chapter is bookended, right? It begins with that, first of all, that sweet declaration that Paul makes, right? That there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? And he, and he, he makes that on the heels of describing, you know, the, the warfare, the battle that is walking with Christ and, and being faithful to Christ and, and, and dealing with that sinful nature that is yet in us, right? And, and praise God, he says, oh, there's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And now, now it closes with the equally excellent for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing, anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we've got these two bookends of this glorious and incomparable salvation, right? The no condemnation and no separation, right? It's beautiful. And in this section that we have been really studying over the last few weeks, what Paul's been doing here. You know, starting in verse 31, as he's been dealing with every possible objection, right? Every possible fear, every, you know, enemy to assurance that our salvation in Christ may not be permanent, may not be irreversible, may not be eternally secure. And he's done so in a really sort of Unique kind of way. He has been proposing and, and posing these rhetorical questions that are to be resoundingly answered in the negative, right? Before then giving us the reason for why that's so, right? I mean, go back and look at it. Verse 31. He begins by asking, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer to that is what? 
Nobody, right? Nobody. Nobody can be against us. There's no possible opponent that can interfere with or undo the salvation that God has wrought for us. No one that can successfully stand in opposition to God's determined purpose, right? Which is to conform us to the image of His Son in order that Christ might be the firstborn among many brethren and receive the glory and the honor that He deserves, right? There's no way our salvation can fail. There's no way that we will fail to be glorified. There is no possible way that Christ will fail to receive the honor and the majesty that he deserves. The glory and the praise that he is due. And then he tells us why, right? Look at it, verse 32. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And the answer to that, of course, is he will. He will give us everything we need. He's already given us the far greater gift of his son. And so God will indeed give us every single thing that we need in order that we might be glorified, in order that we might see our salvation fully accomplished and completed and, and present, be presented before the very face of the living God, right? He'll give us everything that we need. Then he poses the question, well, Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And again, the answer to that is what? No one, right? Who's going to bring a charge that's going to stick? Who's going to bring a charge that God's going to be like, hey, you got a good point there. I hadn't thought about that one, right? Nobody. Nobody's going to bring any charge against us that could any way nullify our salvation. The world will try. The devil will try. Our own consciences might even try. But no one can. And you know why? It's because verse At the end of verse 33, it is God who justifies. It's God who justifies. It's God who's declared you to be not guilty and righteous, fully righteous, clothed with the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's God who's pronounced that verdict. It's God that's made that decision. And God, when he makes a proclamation, when he declares, when he makes a, when he makes a a decree, God never goes back on his word. He never goes back on his decision. God is not someone who has to contemplate whether or not he's right or wrong when he speaks. He's always right. And so when he declares us as the righteous judge of the universe, whose verdict is absolute and perfect and unappealable, when he declares us as justified, we are. Nobody who's been justified by God can then be unjustified. Then he asks the question, well, who is to condemn? And the answer, of course, is yet again, no one. And the reason is that is so is because of what Christ has done to save us, right? He says, well, Christ Jesus is the one who died. Well, yeah. Well, why won't we be condemned? Because Christ died and he actually died under the condemnation for our sins. Not for any sins that he committed because he committed none. Jesus had no other reason to die unless it be for us, unless it be to endure on our behalf the wrath that we deserve and to be punished for your sin and for mine. He died to satisfy the justice of God. Oh, but hold on. Not only did he die, he also rose. He was raised 
from the dead. Well, what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that his identity as the Son of God, he proclaimed to be the Son of God, that identity is true. It tells us that, that his mission to seek and save the lost has been verified and validated. Every sin has been accounted for. And it tells us that God was satisfied in his satis- sacrificial offering of himself on behalf of the elect because he has been authenticated by the resurrection by God the Father himself. But we're not done. How do we know we can't be condemned? Because not only did he die, and not only was he raised, he's now at the right hand of God. He's been exalted to the place of, 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 of the highest position of authority and power and honor as the reward for what he has done in saving us. He's been placed there by God as a reward for what he has done for his permanent justification and redemption of the elect, right? And in that place of supreme authority and power and majesty, Paul says he indeed is interceding for us. He's using all of his authority and all of his power for our benefit. He is enthroned at the right hand of God. Think about this now. Using all of his authority and all of his power and all of his, you know, his, his sovereign might for our benefit right there used to be an old saying when i was growing up i think people probably still say it today but there used to be an old saying growing up that it's not what you know it's who you know right that is perfectly illustrated right here isn't it he's at the right hand of god he's interceding for us using all of his authority and power for our salvation and our sanctification and for our preparation for that day when he comes again and when he will, that he will come into this world to judge every soul in righteousness and inflict judgment, inflict vengeance, I mean, on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, First Thessalonians, or Second Thessalonians chapter one, that they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. And to be marveled at among all who have believed. And so we, what we have to see, what we're meant to see here is Paul is like laying out the security of our salvation is this, is that if our salvation ultimately fails, if for some reason even one of the elect is lost, if for some reason the full number of those that have been chosen by God in eternity past are not brought in to the kingdom of God by the work of Jesus Christ, then Jesus Christ would be an ineffective Savior. And that failure to be an effective Savior would require that Christ be deposed from His position of power, from His position of honor. It would require that He be unseated from His place at the right hand of God, of the Father. It would require that he'd be impeached for his failure to accomplish the salvation of his people and that he lose the reward. Lose the reward for all that he's done. Beloved, that can't be. It can't be. And the God who knows all things and decrees all things and ordains all things and does so flawlessly, beloved, since he's already rewarded his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for saving us in a perfect manner, if our salvation were somehow to fail, it would render God Almighty no God at all. And that's simply impossible. 
Our salvation is as sure as God is God. And His perfect purpose cannot fail, right? Now, that's all true. Every single thing that we've just reviewed is absolutely true. It is absolutely certain, right? In, in, in the realm of justice, in the realm of, of you know, of, of legal, rational arguments, all of this is, is, is perfectly true. Like, you cannot poke a hole in this logically at all, right? Now, if Paul were to leave it there, if he had just said, that's it, that's all I got to do to prove the assurance of your salvation, I'm done. That's as far as I'm going to go. If he had left it there, really, there would have been no complaint. I mean, what, what could we say? Like, you know, you could have done a better job, Paul, right? But he doesn't leave it there. And I want us to see that. This is very important. He doesn't leave it there. This is all true. The rational, the legal arguments... But in this text this morning, in this final paragraph, in this wonderful section of Romans chapter 8, it reaches its great, really, crescendo. And it does so by rising to the personal reason that God is for us. To the personal reason that God has saved us. To the personal reason that our salvation cannot be lost. And that personal reason is this. It's the love of Christ. It's the eternal, unchangeable, unfathomable, life-transforming love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's not content to leave it in legal terms. He's not content to leave it in rational terms. He wants us to understand the power of the love of God. He wouldn't have us view our salvation, Paul, and our security in Christ. He would not have us view that in impersonal or merely, you know, rational and transactional and legal terms. He wants us to understand it in terms of the heart. And in particular, the heart of God. The divine, steadfast love of the Almighty God. So Paul asked the question, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? In other words, what he's saying is that the, really the heart of all of this, of this great, glorious salvation that I've been describing to you and unfolding to you and, 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 you know, just like this, this wonderful, redemption that i've been you know fleshing out for you here in romans chapter 8 what it really comes down to is this at the at the very core of that is the love of god for you in christ the love of god for you that that quite frankly you just don't deserve you don't deserve it you know we live in an entitlement world we live in an entitlement kind of society where we think we are owed everything where we think if whatever else anybody else gets we ought to get it too that it's unfair if we don't get what they get right that if somehow i got a cookie i got a cookie because i stole it from you and if you got a cookie you got it because you stole it from me and so everybody deserves to have a cookie And engulfed in that kind of mindset, we've grown up with this idea that we're just all just kind of deserving of God's love. That, you know, it's God is love and, and, and we don't bother defining how God is love and, but God is love and so therefore all of us, we just deserve God's love and so God loves us all in this same kind of way. 
And the answer, beloved, to that statement is that no, he does not. Just as I do not love every other woman in the way that I love Christ, or in the way that I love Gretchen, Christ does not love every single person in the world in the way that he loves his bride. For some reason, we would get a, you know, aghast if I were to love other women in the way that I love my wife. But, you know, we're troubled that maybe God doesn't love everybody in the exact same way. But he doesn't. He loves his own with a special and a unique love. And that's at the heart of Paul asking this question. What, what can possibly separate us from the love of Christ? What, what, who or what can sever us? Who or what can cut us off? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? From the love of Christ. Now it's important for us to understand here that, 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 that we understand, it's important for us to understand the question here. The essential issue at hand here, beloved, the question, you know, that's at hand here is, is this. It, 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 it's, it's not our love for Christ. It's not our love to Jesus, which waxes and wanes and which is changeable and which is sometimes fickle and which is inconsistent. If we're honest, what's at issue here is not our love for Christ. The essential question at hand is Christ's love for us, for his elect, for his church, for his bride. God wants to see that. Like if we were dependent upon our own love for God to hold us fast. There's not a one of us that could be assured of salvation. And some people might take umbrage at that. Well, you know, I hear what you're saying there, preacher, but that's not true of me. Like I'm pretty consistent in all of my love for Jesus. All right, let me ask you this question. Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and do so perfectly? Well, now, when you put it that way, that's, isn't that legalistic? No, that's biblical. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Do you ever sin? None of us loves God perfectly, right? Right? Nobody loves Christ perfectly. The phrase, the love of Christ, it doesn't refer to our imperfect love for Christ. It refers to his perfect, steadfast, infinite love for us. Again, I want to press this home. If, if our assurance and our security in Christ, if it depended upon the constancy and the quality of our love to Christ, beloved, we're doomed. We're doomed. Our salvation, praise God, rests upon Christ's steadfast unchanging, irrevocable, and enduring love for us. I mean, I love Jesus. I do. I love Him. I sincerely love Him who loved me first. But as painful as it is to admit, as painful as it is to confess, beloved, I do not love Him as I should at all times. I don't. The question is not, can my love endure? Can your love endure? The question is, will the love of Christ endure? Will Christ's love for me endure? Will Christ's love hold me fast to the end? And the answer to that is yes, it will. Yes, it will. But Christ's love for us, listen, we've got to believe it. We've really got to believe it and we need to treasure it. And it needs to actively occupy our hearts and our minds. When we think about Christ's love, we need to think about it in the right terms and in the right context, in the right, you know, like, right concept. For instance, his love is a powerful, right, life-giving, hope, 
begetting love. It's a love that will not let us go. Like there's not a point where Christ says, all right, that's enough. And, and just lets us go. It's not a love that'll let us go. It's, it's a love that compelled Christ to lay down his own life for us. It's a love that delivers us from the depths of darkness and sin into the glory of his marvelous light. It's a love that opens up blinded eyes and that heals the sin-sick soul. It's a love that, that cannot condemn us, but counts us as just and righteous in God's sight. It's a love that pursues wretched rebels, wretched rebels, to adopt them into the family of God. A love that cleanses the guilt of sin, that puts in our souls the joy of forgiveness It's a love that binds us to Him with unbreakable cords of love. It's a love that is uniquely for His own. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5 that Christ loved the church with a special, with a particular, with a distinguishing love and gave Himself up for her, for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. He goes on to say that Christ nourishes and cherishes his church. He does so with a steadfast covenant Undefeated, unrelenting love. A love that he sovereignly places upon people who deserve his wrath and hatred. He found us. When you think about this now, he found us. When we had made ourselves worthless. When we had made ourselves, when we were utterly unrighteous. When we were enemies. When we were wretched. When we were ungodly and defiled and polluted. And He loved us with an enduring, sacrificial And costly love. We who could give him nothing. He gave everything. What love is this? Really? Why should he love us like this? What kind of love is this? I mean, let's just be honest. We are barely able to comprehend it, aren't we? Aren't we? We're barely able, on the flip side, to be astounded by it like we should. We've never known another love like this. There's not another love to compare it to. There is not another love in this entire universe like the love of God in Christ Jesus for us. Even the inner Trinitarian love of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That's the source of God's love for us. 
But it's, you can't compare the two. Why? Because it is an inner Trinitarian, an inner Trinitarian love, a, a communal love of perfect God. How do we understand this? We've never known a love, love like this. And that's why Paul prays for us as he does, you know, for the, look, for the Ephesians that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I pray that that prayer is fulfilled in our lifetime, in your lifetime, in my lifetime. But sometimes when I consider that prayer, I think to myself, that's probably not going to be fulfilled until the day in which Christ returns and, and, and we're glorified and we behold him as he is because we're like him. Church and Richard Baxter asked this question, and I, he's right. He says, is it a small thing in your eyes to be loved by God? Is it? Is it a small thing in your eyes to be loved by God? To be the son, the spouse, the love, the delight of the king of glory. Christian, believe this and think about it. You will be eternally embraced. You will be eternally embraced in the arms of the love which was from everlasting and will extend to everlasting of the love which brought the son of God's love from heaven to earth. From earth to the cross, from the cross to the grave, from the grave to glory. The love which was weary, hungry, tempted, scorned, scourged, buffeted, spat upon, crucified, pierced. The love which fasted and prayed and taught and healed and wept and sweated and bled and died. That love, that love will eternally embrace you. Richard Baxter's right. Let me just add this. Truly, it embraces you even now. And it's not fickle. It's not a love that's there today and gone tomorrow. It's not like your first love in high school. Actually, your first crush in fifth grade. You know? I remember fondly Kim Brown. My, first, my fifth grade crush. The one who embarrassed me in front of the entire class. By saying, you've got to prove that you're my boyfriend. And then to prove that you're my boyfriend, you have to kiss me on the cheek in front of your buddies. I was a leper for many months following that. My buddies didn't want anything to do with me. But look, God's love is real. And it's solid and it's, ever, and, and, and it's steadfast. And it is a foundation for life. And for that reason, Paul, you know, asks the question. He just says, look, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, danger, or sword? I want you to understand here, Paul's not just like pulling things, you know, just out of the air here. This is really kind of autobiographical for Paul. These are all the same things, aren't they, that Paul himself faced. These are all the things that, that, that Paul faced. He takes this, makes this sample list, this microcosm list of, of what it looks like to, to live as a Christian in a hostile world, the things that might threaten to separate us from the love of Christ and sever us from the Lord. And, you know, because he's not an ivory tower theologian, praise God, Paul's like, look, these are the kinds of things that, you know, I've experienced. In fact, all of them 
including the one that was yet to be fulfilled, which is martyrdom, right? Now, I want you to notice something here. Paul is not writing this. He's not writing these words to make us secure in our heretofore, everyday, relatively easy and comfortable Western American Christian lives. You see that? Like this isn't like, hey, I want you to be secure in Christ's love as you pursue your best life now. It's not that. And if we're really quite honest here, like we look at this list and I mean, we can see how, how serious this is, but for us in our comfortable Western Christian lives, these things aren't really something that we think about on an everyday basis, are they? Are they? But he's writing this, beloved, to, to Roman Christians. To Roman Christians that were suffering hardship and persecution and martyrdom for their faith in Christ and their commitment to the gospel. He's writing this to Roman Christians who are being turned out of their homes, who are being rejected by workplace guilds or unions. He's writing this to Christians that are under the threat of being dragged before the authorities and being made to confess that Caesar is Lord, which they will not do and which they will thereby sign their own death certificate by refusing to do so. He's not writing this to, you know, the Christians that populate Twitter and Facebook and TikTok. He's writing this to dudes, to women, where persecution is very real. A kind of persecution that if you're paying attention, is beginning on a small scale in our own nation. Don't fall for the lies that the Respect for Marriage Act is just a benign little piece of legislation. It's not. It's beginning in our own nation. And I believe it's only going to continue to grow. I really do. You know, when you look at our nation, I think what's going to be used to persecute the faithful church is going to be not just the woke agenda, but the legislationally codified woke agenda. In fact, it's being used right now by woke churches to attack unwoke churches. And so it doesn't surprise us, or it shouldn't surprise us. We've been spared in a large part until now. Beloved, that's not going to last forever. Following Christ faithfully, and it's going to meet with open opposition from a lost society. It's always been that way. And at some point, the genuineness of our faith is going to be tested in these ways. And you might say, well, you're just being a doomer. No, I've actually read the Bible. And Jesus is very clear when he's speaking about the end of the age. When he says, for instance, in Mark chapter 13, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. These must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pangs. 
But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed in all the nations. And when you, when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake but the one who endures to the end will be saved that's the sort of thing of which paul is speaking here the words that he chooses under the inspiration of the holy spirit are carefully chosen words we don't like to think about them but we better but we 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 better start doing so And the things that Paul describes here, again, they weren't foreign to either him or the Roman Christians. That word tribulation, it's a catch-all kind of word. It's a general word that describes pressing and squeezing and pushing down. It was, in fact, a word that was used for a type of execution in which you would take, you would have a, the person that you're executing, they would be laying on their back and you would take stones, heavy stones, and you would continue to pile these heavy stones upon their chest until their chest cavity was depressed and they could breathe no longer. That's the idea here. It describes the pressing of grapes. The continual pressure to conform, you know, in our, in our context, it would be the condition, the continual pressure to conform to the thinking and the ways and the spirit of this present age. He talks about distress. It carries the idea of being in narrow straits, of being under hardship or confinement, of, 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 of feeling an, an utter lack of freedom. Again, a picture of this, this word was used to describe torture where you would put someone in a cage and the cage would not be wide enough for them to sit down or to lie down and it would not be tall enough for them to stand up straight imagine that for a moment that would be horrific torture wouldn't it that's the idea that he's speaking of here Lacking this freedom physically, mentally, spiritually. The word that you, that's used for persecution, you know what this means. It means to be chased down or to be run down or to be pursued in order to be harassed or troubled or mistreated or at least be made to run away. It can happen in a lot of ways. It's visited upon us in a number of different ways, right? He talks here about famine and nakedness. Where does that come from? Well, they're the consequences of the first three. Being unable to adequately feed and clothe yourself, right? Because of the tribulation and the distress and the persecution that you've been undergoing. Paul uses the word danger, a word that just simply means to be exposed to peril and to risk continually. And then the word sword, we know what Paul's describing there. He's describing martyrdom, right? Death for faithfulness to Christ. Now, again, to our Western ears, some of these things sound foreign. I mean, we can hear tribulation and distress and persecution and see how maybe they're a possibility, but famine and nakedness and danger and sword, that sounds like a bridge too far. But the only reason that it seems that way to us is because in God's restraining grace, we have not yet faced them in this country. It's not because we're special. 
but simply because God is gracious and he has mercy on whom he'll have mercy. But why should it be any different? Why should we be any different than so many faithful Christians who have gone before us or our brothers and sisters in so many countries around the world for whom this is everyday life? Paul looks at those things and he says, can, can those things separate us from the love of Christ? It may seem like it sometimes, but the answer to that is no, it can't. God's love does not, Christ's love does not wax and wane. In fact, what he's saying, what he's saying to the Roman Christians is, listen, this persecution that you're enduring, everything that's going on, it's not a sign that Christ doesn't love you. Not at all. You're suffering with him. He's suffering with you in your suffering. Right? And you remember what he said to, to, to Paul when he when Paul was converted on the Damascus Road, right? After Paul had participated in the murder of Stephen, Jesus didn't show up and say, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting Stephen? Paul, Paul, why, why are you persecuting Christians? What did he say? Paul, or Saul, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting what? Me. That's why, in fact, Paul quotes from Psalm 44. Look again what it says in verse 36. This is, this is from Psalm 44. He says, as it's written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Again, it might seem a little foreign to us, but these things, Paul's saying, look, this has been the common lot of God's people in this fallen world forever. The reason for your suffering, the reason for suffering is precisely because of your union with the Lord. It's for His sake. For the sake of the Lord, because we're His people in a world under the sway of the devil, the mindset of this fallen world of men and women toward us, though it may or may not be fully expressed and it may or may not be obvious to us, and, and you know, and to a degree, at least again in our nation, has been restrained. The world's mindset towards us, whether we realize it or not, beloved, is this, is that we're sheep that deserve slaughtered. We're sheep to be slaughtered. We're livestock to be put to death. The world's not your friend. It's not your friend. As Christians, beloved, we need to be realists. As believers in Christ, we need to expect troubles and persecution. And we need to contemplate the very real possibility of soon and open persecution even here in America. We've got to expect to be treated as our Lord was treated. It's part of sharing in His sufferings so that we might share in His glory, right? Right? The Lord Jesus Christ said to us in, in John chapter six or 15, verses 18 through 20, He said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant's not greater than the master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And then later in John 16, he says, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And that bedrock truth is what drives Paul to declare what he does in verse 
37. Can these things, these terrible things, separate us from the love of Christ? Paul says no. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Do you hear the certainty in Paul's voice, beloved? Do you hear his confidence? He's not searching for something to say to try to make things better for the Romans, right? Like there he is really dealing with and being confronted with the reality of, of all of the, of the things that they have to face as the people of God. This tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and sword. And he's not like, let me come up with some really nice sounding psychological pablum. Does he? Does he? He's not like, well, you know, the philosopher, whatever the dude's name is, McFadden, I think it's McFadden, says, don't worry, be happy. Isn't it Bobby McFadden? Don't worry, be happy. He didn't do that. I love the fact that he's so bold here. No, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In all these things, no exceptions, no caveats. What about my situation? I'm telling you, in all these things. Well, my situation is different than everybody else's. No, it really isn't. No, it's not. Not in its essence. In all these things, we're more than conquerors. We don't just endure or slog through the difficulties and the tribulations of this life that come with being the people of God. We, we go through this life triumphantly, confidently, victoriously, assured of God's love, of Christ's love. We're more than conquerors. Beloved, when we're assured of Christ's love, we can face life without fear. We can face life without worry, knowing that we cannot be severed from his everlasting love. Sure, I might face tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword, but I know this. Christ has loved me. He loves me still. He'll love me forever, and he will bring me home to him for all of eternity. I know it. And all that I endure for his sake, whatever it may be, none of it's lasting. None of it's lasting. None of it's eternal. None of it can touch my soul or sever me from the love of Christ. These things are temporal, right? But Christ's love is eternal. And the promises of his love, you know what they're not? They're not, they're not sweet nothings or empty wishes like so many of our love songs that we hear on the radio. They are certain and sure promises. They are promises of his loving fellowship and strength and peace in the midst of suffering and hardship now. And it is the promise of the eternal glory and perfect communion and perfect community and everlasting joy and love without bounds or degree that is to come. Love that delights and satisfies and thrills our soul. Love that even now makes us to be more than conquerors in all the vicissitudes of life. We are not victims. We are victors. In Christ. How different is that from the contemporary American mindset? And how is that so? It's because of his love. 
It's because by his love, Christ has lifted and he's fixed our eyes upon what is of greatest significance. Something that's greater, something that's more real, something that is eternal and everlasting. More than anything in this world. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading. That is kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation. Ready to be revealed in the last time. Though we have not seen Christ, what? We love him because he loved us first because he loves us now and he's going to love us forever his love cannot it will not be abated by anything that we face in his life in this life this his love has plucked us as brands from the burning think about that his love has plucked us as brands from the burning He has lifted us, His love, out of the mire of our sin. His love has rescued us from the fate of this fallen world. His love has made us His own. And by His love, He'll carry us through it all. His love is powerful, unfailing, and it cannot be extinguished. No, you're not guaranteed. None of us is. Immunity to tribulation or tragedy or to temptation or to hardship. We are not promised an easy life in this fallen world. Beloved, we need to purge our minds once and for all of the false promises of the false Americanized, westernized gospel. We are not promised that suffering will never afflict us. We are not promised that we will not endure persecution. We are not promised... That we'll die before our children. We're not promised wealth and fame and fortune and excellent health. We're not promised that we can speak words and thereby speak things into existence. But we are promised. That ever befalls us in this world for the sake of Christ will never separate us from his love and from his loving purpose in our lives. We are secure in the love of Christ and the promise, the guarantee. I want you to see this that we're more than conquerors in all the trials of life, Paul says, is established by the fact that Christ loved us. I want you to see this. He says, we are more than conquerors to him who loved us. Past tense, right? It's a past tense. He loved us. And why is he putting it in the past tense? Well, Paul is not diminishing the ongoing assurance of Christ's love for us even now. He's just simply pointing to the ultimate act by which Christ proved his love. He's pointing back to the, to the place where Christ proved his love for us. In fact, it might surprise you, but there's only one verse in the New Testament that describes him loving us, that, that he loves us. Only one. Every other one is in the past tense. Why is that? Because it points back to the place where Christ's love for us has been so openly and clearly demonstrated at the cross, right? And the idea really in the Greek here, of the, of the construct of this Greek sentence is that Christ has always loved us and demonstrated that he loves us and now continues to love us. That's the idea here. And Paul states it like that because it's really very practical. 
if the ground for your assurance and security in Christ is based upon a decision that you made or upon the quality and the consistency of your love or on, say, being baptized or on something else that you do or that you did, then that security is built on shifting sand and it cannot hold up under the pressure of life at all. But by putting the focus on the cross, by putting it on the the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, on Him who loved me and gave Himself for me, by putting the focus on Him as my head, on Christ as my representative, on Christ as my substitute, on Christ as my sin bearer, on Christ as my propitiation, on Christ as my deliverer, on Christ as my redeemer, on Christ as my righteousness, on Christ as the one who has loved me with an everlasting love, the one who loved me with a cross, putting my focus there puts my reliance where it belongs on the unchanging love of the Lord Jesus Christ and not on me at all. That's the point. That's the point. When the grounds of your assurance and your confidence is Christ loved me and He still loves me with a love that will not let me go and He's proven it definitively by His cross, then, beloved, you will be more than a conqueror in all things because you'll know, no matter what, that nothing can ever sever you from the love of Christ. Nothing at all. It's a cross-centered view. It's that cross-centered view. The proof of a love that cannot and will not fail and has been demonstrated in Christ, it's that cross-centered view then that leads to Paul's glorious conclusion. Look at it. He closes this glorious chapter with a glorious conclusion. It is fitting. Look what he says. For I am sure. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Man, this is so excellent, isn't it? Isn't it? I would much rather hear a preacher that says, I am sure, than a guy who stands up and speaks in vagaries, speaks in shadows, and in uncertainty, And really, with a lack of faith in Christ. I want, hear the conviction in Paul's heart as he pens this. I am sure. The idea here is, you know what? I have become fully convinced. And I remain convinced. And there is no one that can shake me from this conviction. I am totally, completely, and fully persuaded. There's no room for doubt here. There is no question in my mind. By divine truth and by my own experience, I have come to this unwavering conclusion brought on by the facts of the gospel and by my experience of Christ's love. And the conclusion is this. 
Neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen, I am telling you right now, I've been through it all. I've taught all this. That's what Paul's saying. I've been through it all. I've taught all this. I'm telling you. There is nothing, not a thing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not a thing. So don't you be a coward. And don't you be fearful. And don't you mope around. And don't you act as if you're unloved. Don't you act as if you're an orphan in this world. You are not. You can't be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And I love what he does here, right? Like, you know, before this, when he's talking about those other things, right? He's talking about stuff that, that he's experienced and that, that is, that is really, you know, we can't relate to, we just can't relate to some of those things because they've not happened to us, right? But here, we can relate to all these things. Like, he, he, he takes these, these examples and the scope of these examples, they cover the entire gamut of the human experience, right? They do. Think about this with me. Paul says, neither death nor life. You know what? Think about it. Death can separate us from a lot of stuff, can it? Can it? I mean, death separates us from this world. It separates us from, you know, friends and family. It separates us from life on this earth, from earthly pleasures. It separates us from our bodies, right? But you know what death can't separate us from? The love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It actually ushers us into his presence and into the full enjoyment of his love. That's what death does. To be absent from the body, Paul says, is to what? Be present with the Lord. Life, you know, life can actually be a greater threat than death. You ever thought about that? You ever thought about that? Like one of the things I've joked about before is that I always love to read the guys that are dead. Like my favorite theologians are dead theologians. The reason that is, is because they've lived their lives. And so there's no danger that they're going to do something down the road where you're like, oh, that idiot. Well, I'm getting rid of his books, right? Life is dangerous. Life is dangerous. It could be more dangerous than, than death. In the parable of the sower, you remember this, Jesus talks about those who fell away when, quote, tribulation or persecution arises on account of the world, word, or because of, quote, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things. But you know what? The love of God in, in Christ won't allow us to fall away, will it? It won't allow us to fall away because those whom he foreknew, those whom he foreloved, he predestined, he called, he justified, and he glorified. And those golden links cannot be broken, right? In fact, not even your sin, beloved, in this life can separate you from the love of God. There's no sin that you could ever commit if you're in Christ by faith, truly in Christ, that can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Now, don't, don't hear that wrongly. That's not like an encouragement to try. It's not. It's not what I'm saying. It's not an encouragement to live carelessly and foolishly, right? But it is true. Listen, God's love can't be undone by your sin because it is rooted in His choice of you before the foundation of the world and in full view of your sin. You can't undo God's saving love for you. 
Paul says, neither can angels or rulers or angels or demons. That might be another way to translate this. In other words, the whole scope of supernatural beings. None of them can ever separate you from God's love. Elect angels, first of all, would never want to, right? But, but none of the stratagems or the malice or the cunning or the wiles of the devil and his minions can ever separate you, sever you from God's love for you. Just can't. God's love is greater than any strength they might have. Neither can things present nor things to come. Nothing now. Nothing that, that we may endure in the future. None of what, of the what ifs that plague us. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about because some of you guys are the what if kings and queens. I'm not going to call any names or anything, but there are people, and I love you, I love you so much. Don't get me wrong, but like, well, what if, what if, what if? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Nor things present, nor things to come. Nothing Today, nothing tomorrow, nothing in eternity, nothing can separate us from God's love. Neither can what Paul describes here is powers. Now, this is one of those words that's a little difficult to interpret. You know exactly what Paul is, is getting at here, what he's referring to. But in light of the people to whom Paul is writing under the who are under the thumb of the godless Roman emperor, I take him to be talking here about the things that try to exert unrighteous control in our lives, right? Like the powers may be exercised by unregenerate men and women against those who are in the faith. Ungodly government authorities, ungodly laws, atheistic and unmoored religion, religious thought, right? If for there we might extrapolate to such things as the power of mass media or big tech or the surveillance state or deep state or big pharma or whatever. But the point is, is that none of these things have the power to sever God's love for us, nor height nor depth, right? Well, what is Paul talking about there? Well, he could be speaking of, you know, heaven to hell, heaven, heaven or hell, like from heaven to hell, there's nothing or or the immensity of the entire created universe. In other words, what he's getting at though is this. It just doesn't matter where you are. You're secure in God's love, right? You are. There's nowhere you can go that you're not secure in God's love. And then to prevent any possible objection or question, Paul says, nor anything else in all creation. It's a great catch-all, right? Right? Like, look, there's nothing else. Whatever else you might think of, gather it up and put it in the bag of everything else in all creation. And there's nothing. No exceptions, not even you, that will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's it. When you're in Christ Jesus, our Lord, nothing has the ability to sever you from the love of God in Christ. Nothing. It's a sure and certain and unchanging and everlasting as could ever be imagined, and that love Paul says, is found alone in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Why does he belabor that point? Why does he talk about the love of Christ and then the love of Christ, the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord? Why does he do that? He's emphasizing the point here. He's emphasizing that the love is, is related to Christ, right? So why is he doing that? He wants us to understand that the special love of God, the covenant love of God for his people is found in nowhere else. It's found in Christ or it's not found at all. And I really want to nail this down, beloved. Just I want to nail this down because there are so many in our world 
who talk about the love of God but do so tragically out of ignorance and assumption and without any reference to Christ at all. There are many people, you know some, who speak of the love of God yet they reject the gospel, right? They, they never worship. They, they wouldn't darken the doors of a church, maybe at a funeral. They never give any thought to God at all. They speak of God's love only with reference to what they perceive as material blessings and the, quote, good life. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me. It is true that God has a common love for all people, right? He does. He causes, Scripture says, the rain to fall on the just and on the unjust, right? He allows unbelievers to enjoy good gifts in this world. Gifts of, of marriage and, and children, the beauty of his creation, you know, food and drink, music, creativity, all those things. And in that way, God demonstrates his general love, his general love for humanity. And they think that's all there is to it. They believe in the love of God as a philosophic, a philosophic construct. But not in God's love as it truly is. Not in God's love as it is definitively displayed. Not God's love as a holy love. Or a righteous love. Or a just love. A love that, beloved, is found only in Christ alone. The whole of God's saving love, His special love toward us, it's in Christ alone. There's no saving love outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in His sinless life, His substitutionary death, His bodily resurrection, His present enthronement, and His current intercession for us that we see clearly the love of God for us. For those whom He's foreknown, and those whom He's predestined and called and justified, and whom He will undoubtedly glorify. It's a steadfast, enduring, and everlasting love for His peculiar people, which can never be severed or separated. And it's vital that we understand. Again, as I mentioned earlier, there is a love, a kind of love with which God loves a general love, all of the creation. If not, He would take away our air. But there is a special love that He reserves only for His children and that has been proven in history in one person alone. And it's Jesus Christ our Lord. That's it. And so all this talk about God loves this person and God loves that person and God loves the other person. And so therefore, my God, whose only love would never allow anyone to go to hell because God loves. And so therefore, nobody can go to hell and nobody is judged and nobody. That God doesn't exist. That God is a figment of our culture's imagination and really its longing. Because they don't want to deal with a God whose love is holy and just and righteous. And that in order to love us freely, must demand the death of his son on our The only question for us is, do you believe and rest in this love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? Do you believe it? 
Do you rest in it? Do you love it? Beloved, we need to. You and I must delight and we must rest and we must believe in this love. Man, God's love for his children is invincible. I just want you to think about this. We can't be separated from a love that's already declared there's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We can't be separated from a love that's given the Holy Spirit to dwell within us and seal our adoption as the sons of God and now call him Abba, Father. We can't be separated from, from a love that, that has made us heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We can't be separated from a love that has given the Holy Spirit to help us in our weakness and intercede for us with groanings too deep for words. We cannot be separated from this love that's determined to make us like Christ. We can't be separated from this love that will conform us to His image. We cannot be separated from the love that says, those whom He predestined, He called, and those whom He called, He justified, and those whom He justified, He also glorified. We can't be separated from the love that spared not His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. We cannot be separated from a love that justifies us. We can't be separated from a love that died and was raised and sits at the right hand of God and now intercedes for us so that we cannot be condemned. Nothing can separate us from this love. Nothing. Jesus said, as the Father, I want you to hear me. He said, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. As the Father's loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. But when you hear me, when I say this, Christ's love to us is as sure and is as certain, as eternal and everlasting as the love between the Father and the Son. And what does that mean? It means this. It means God's love for the Son and the Son's love for the Father must surely evaporate. It must cease to exist if God or Christ should ever stop loving us. Think about that. The love between the members of the triune Godhead would have to evaporate and cease to exist for God to stop loving us. Do you believe that? Do you rest in it? Sinclair Ferguson said, if we have deep-seated fears that God does not really love us, as many Christians have, we can only go so, so far in growing nearer to God. There'll come a point at which we will fear to trust Him any further because we cannot be sure of His love. When we look at ourselves or our own faith or our circumstances, we will never be free from those lurking fears. Satan will see to that. But when we lift up our eyes and look on the cross, we find the final persuasion that God is gracious toward us. How can He be against us when all His wrath against us fell upon Christ? How can he fail to care for us when he gave the only son he had for our sake? How can we doubt him when he has given us evidence of his love sufficient to banish all doubts? Beloved, I want you to hear me when I say it's only in this certainty that God loves us that we will ever grow, really grow in our love to him. Only as we are certain that God loves us Will we be hungry to get to know him better and to learn his word and his will and his ways, to understand his attributes and his character and his glory, to, 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 under, to know what it means to love him with heart and soul and mind and strength and what it means to love our neighbors as ourselves and what it means to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's only as we're confident in his love for us that we will understand what it means to be ambassadors for Christ and to labor and to pray to bring others into this love. No truth 
will transform your life more than knowing and believing and living every day with a deep sense of God's love for you in Christ. To the extent that you really lay hold of God's love, you will experience the full joy of salvation and live in consistent triumph over temptation and sin and be more than a conqueror in life. God does not want you to be unsure of his love. No good father would want that for his children. And I'm pleading with you, if you're here this morning, and you're still a stranger to the love of God in Christ, and you've never placed your full faith and trust in Christ's righteous life and his sacrificial death on your behalf to pay in penalty, to pay in full the penalty of your sins, and you have never surrendered to him as Savior and Lord, I, I am pleading with you to come to him today. I'm pleading with you to come to him today and to know the saving love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord alone. Sometimes people will say, well, I just need a little more proof. I need a little something of this or a little something of that. If God would do this or if God would do that or if Jesus would do this. Or... What more would you have Christ do? What more would you have Christ do than die, rise, be enthroned, and intercede for you? Now can be the day of your salvation. Do not refuse God's love in Christ. May we all, and I'll close with this, may we all come to say with the old British Baptist pastor, John Fawcett, old dude, is actually converted under the ministry of George Whitfield. He said this, he's, this was his heart. He said, oh, blessed Jesus, your love is wonderful. Oh, blessed Jesus, your love is wonderful. It is the admiration, joy, and song of glorified saints. And the experiential sense of your love on earth sweetens the bitterness of life and disarms death of all its terrors. It was love which moved you to bow the heavens and to come down and to sojourn on earth, and to humble yourself, to take to you the form of a servant and become obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. You pitied me in my lost estate. You sought me and you found me when I sought you not. You spoke peace to me in the day of my distress when the clouds of guilt and and darkness hung heavy on my soul and I was brought to the borders of despair. You have borne with all my weakness corrected my mistakes, restored me from my wanderings, and healed me in my backslidings. May your loving kindness be ever before my eyes to induce me to walk in your truth. May your love be the daily theme of my meditations and the constant joy of my heart. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, gracious and merciful and loving God. Father, we thank you. We thank you that that your church, your people, Father, those whom you have foreloved and predestined and called and justified, and Lord, we know you will glorify that we just thank you that We, your people, know. We know that you love us because your word tells us. We know it's true. 
We know the facts. We know we, we know with certainty the reality and the fact of your love. I pray that you would help us to believe and rest in it as we need to, as we should, as we must. I'm grateful for your holy word. I'm grateful, Father, that this chapter doesn't end at verse 34. I'm grateful that, Lord God, you go beyond the legal and the transactional and, and, and the, the logical to the issue of the heart, to the issue of an unchanging, unapologetic love that you have for your people. And that, Lord Jesus, you have shown, you have demonstrated so clearly, so powerfully in all of your work as our mediator. Not only in your work as our Redeemer and Savior, our Justifier, our Propitiator, but also in your faithfulness as the one who sits at the right hand of the Father, providentially engaging in our lives to accomplish your purposes and making us and bringing us to glory and to salvation. And just in the way that you have remained faithful mediator for us at all times. I pray now, Lord God, you'd help us to really think deeply about what we've heard this morning. And respond in a way that's right in your eyes. Respond in a way that's pleasing in your sight. I pray, Father, that we would just... I pray that we would be grateful for your love and that we would love you in return and that we would think about these things, Lord God, and and it would motivate us and move us. And I am praying for those that are here that do not know Christ, that are outside this experience of the love of God that is in Christ Jesus alone. And I am praying, Lord God, that by your spirit and by your word, you might cause them to be, Father, born again, born from above, Lord God, regenerated. And Lord, that you would give them the very faith to believe in Christ and, Father, to respond to your effectual calling unto Christ. So please do what, Lord, only you can do in applying this truth to our hearts, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.